Well, Merry Christmas to you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. If you're a guest, we're glad you're here. If you're, uh, if you're home from college, we're glad you're here. I know there's at least two. Hi, Lydia and Ruth and Anna, Sarah, Sarah, where? Where? So we've got at least three, at least three. So we've been going through a series. I've, this series kind of lands in an interesting spot for Christmas, uh, the fourth Sunday of Advent. The title of my sermon is Mortify the Flesh. It's going to be a nice hot and heavy one for you here on fourth Sunday of Advent, getting ready for Christmas. But we've been going through a sermon series this Advent. Advent just means appearing this Advent season, and just looking about how we change. How as a people do we change? And it's, it's been a tradition of ours as a church every Advent season to slow down uh, and to reflect on how the gospel of Jesus Christ has changed us. And you've, you've heard that, if you've been here for the last few weeks, you've heard that in our sermons. And you heard that this morning in Jason's prayer and challenging us to just be calm and rest and reflect and just bask in the goodness and the glory of God. And part of the effort here is to look at how we become better friends, citizens, husbands, wives, parents, sons, and daughters. How do we change? How do we become more like we know we ought to be? Because I think inside of all of us, we sense a deep splitness. That's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7, this deep splitness, you could say. This sense in which he knows that he longs to do right, and he knows that he's not the way he ought, and yet... There's this residing sinfulness with him. And so we've been talking this last few weeks about how we change. And what we've really said the whole time is that it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we change. The Apostle Paul has been showing us in the book of Romans that there are different ways in which we don't change. Namely, adherence to the moral law. And now he's showing us ways in which we do change by the Spirit. And there's a phrase here that we're going to read in our text this morning that gives us some really keen insights into how we actually change. So if you read the text with me, we'll be in Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read 11, 12, and 13. Verses 11, 12, and 13. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is God's word. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, who loved us, gave himself up for us. We thank you that this morning we can celebrate the incarnation of the Son of God. God became man for our sake. Came to earth to taste our sadness came to earth to obey the precepts of the law for us, came to earth to go to Calvary, where he would suffer and die under the righteous wrath of God for us. 
came to earth that he might send his spirit when he ascends back to the Father. We pray this morning that the spirit would come afresh upon us. We pray, God, that we would actually be changed through the preaching event. That the spirit would move in our hearts. We would understand the gospel even a little bit more than we did. And we would be enamored afresh through Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does it mean to mortify? That's what he says in verse 13. He says, But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The word here, put to death, is a strong word. In the Greek, it literally means to kill. It's a violent term. It's a violent word. And in fact, the King James Version rendered the word mortify. If you mortify the flesh by the Spirit, you will live. But we don't use that word that way anymore. When we say mortify, we think of like embarrassed. Like basically my entire experience from 7th through 8th grade. You're just kind of always mortified. But the word mortify most literally means to put in the mortuary. That's what it means. To put in the mortuary, to kill, to mortify, to put to death. So it's a violent term. But it's an appropriate term. It's an appropriate term when we think about the seriousness of our nature. When we think about the seriousness of our flesh. You can see the needs for such a violent term, when you just consider the way Paul has talked about our sin and our flesh in the preceding chapters. Do you remember what he says about our sinful nature in just verse 3? In verse 3, he says this, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Paul says that the law of God was weakened by our flesh. That there is such a level of corruptness and wickedness and evilness residing in us that it had the power to weaken the law's effects in our life. Certainly doesn't mean weaken in the sense that the moral force of the law isn't perfect and right and pure and constant. It means that our sinful and corrupt nature was so powerful that it was, it was able to weaken the force of the law in our lives. So when we consider what we're actually capable of, when we consider who we actually are, then the word like mortify or put to death or thanatos is necessary and right and appropriate. Paul says that in light of this deep splitness, in light of this profound wickedness and evil, that we need a term like kill in regards to our own flesh. And what are the deeds of the flesh? What is, specifically, what is Paul telling us? As he says in the second half of verse 13, right? Put to death the deeds of the body. What is he talking about? What specifically does he mean? I take that to mean, when he talks about the misdeeds or the deeds of the body, I take that to mean every use of our bodies... That is, our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet, our minds, all of that, I take that to mean to serve ourselves rather than God and other people. 
That's what needs to be put to death. This deep, curved-in self-centeredness, as Luther called it. Or, as one scholar put it, in describing the deeds of the body, he says, the activities and schemings of the sinful flesh. Human self-centeredness and self-assertion. Calls it the schemings of the flesh. The schemings of the flesh, which implies this level of self-deception. And you know, because of what we said last week, I said that the nature of our sinful disposition is that we're deeply curved in on ourselves, that we're consumed with ourselves. And we said that we've before, we've said this several times, we say this all the time, but there are ways in which we can be deeply curved in ourselves. that's a religious way of doing that and an irreligious way of doing it. It's easy to understand the irreligious way of being deeply curved in ourselves. We just eschew all moral law. We just do what we want to do. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. We say, I'm not going to obey the law of God. I'm going to do my own thing, forget religion. It's oppressive, and so on. But there's a religious way as well of being deeply curved in on ourselves, self-centered, self-asserted, in which we only obey the rules. We only obey God to get God's stuff. We only do what the word tells us to do because we are acting in a religious way in which we think, if I put in A, then I will get B. But the problem is, is that so often, in fact, I think I could say inevitably, when we approach God that way, if I put in A, I will get B, it always overpromises and underdelivers. Because inevitably, our obedience will come to a point where there's a seemingly inexplicable circumstance in our life. I obeyed all those years. I homeschooled my kids like I was supposed to, and yet this is what I get at the end of, at the, end of the road here. And it's this diff, deep fist-shaking at God. Because it's an approach to religion that says, you owe me. It's an approach to religion that's deeply curved in on yourself. It's a self-centered approach. It's not looking to God and loving God because of his beauty and his glory and his majesty. It's not just saying, you and you alone, Lord, because of your infinite worth, your holiness, your beauty, I just want to obey you, love you, adore you, be near to you, be close to you. That's the heart of a Christian. That's the heart of a Christian. You know, in talking... Ed Welch has a book. Ed Welch is a counselor and a writer for CCEF, which is a counseling foundation, focuses on education and training and so on. And he wrote a book called Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave. It's a good title. Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave. And this is what he says in the idea of mortifying the flesh. He says, there is a mean streak. He's saying this positively. There is a mean streak to authentic self-control. Self-control is not for the timid. When we want to grow in it, not only do we nurture an exuberance for Jesus Christ, but we also demand of ourselves a hatred for our own sin. He says the self-centered, to be self-controlled is not for the weak of heart. It's not for the timid. And he's thinking about verse 13 here. 
He's saying those that really desire to be controlled are those that mortify the flesh, that kill the desires of the flesh. To mortify means to have a violent disposition be towards our own self-centeredness. No longer a violence towards others and God in service of ourselves, but a violence towards ourselves in our sin in order that we might love God and love others. This is not some kind of self-hate, self-masochism or anything like that. Rather, it's a disposition that knows who we really are, what we're actually capable of as human beings, and it has a radical attitude towards it. It's like the attitude of Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15 when he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. You ever thought about that? Paul, the apostle, the writer of the most of the New Testament, says, I am the foremost, the chief of sinners. What's he doing there? Is he just being hyperbolic? Is he just saying that so people will be endeared to him? I remember an interview one time I was watching with two different pastors. And the one was challenging the other. Because the one was saying, I am the chief of sinners in my church. And the other was challenging him in this interview. Saying, how can you actually think that? I mean, if you actually think that, shouldn't you resign? Shouldn't you step down if you're the actual chief of sinners? You, know, you, must, you, you must mean it in some other way. You know, people are, they're, they're, you, you actually do think people are worse than you in your church, right? And he goes, oh no, not at all. He says, I mean it in this sense, that I know what I am capable of far more than I know what they are capable of. I see the inner recesses of my own heart in a way that I don't see the inner recesses of other men's hearts. I know the deep and vile and awful self-centeredness in myself. I know that I am prone to posture and manipulate and control things for my own sake. I know how, how greedy I am. I know how much I desire to be in control. I know how angry I am. I know the lustful thoughts I have. I know how I gossip about people in ways that I have no idea in my own people's hearts. So yes, I am the chief of sinners. And that's the attitude that the Christian has. A violent disposition toward their own self-centeredness. Knowing what we are actually capable of my friends. And this is a radical, this text gives us a radical redefinition of life and death. What the world calls life is desirable self-indulgence. But this text says that that will lead to death. This text says that desirable self-indulgence will lead us to death. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But to put to death all the perceived evil within us, what the world would see as self-denial, is in reality the authentic way to life. If you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's just what Jesus is telling us. It's just a recapitulation of what Jesus tells us in the Gospels. And calling to the crowd in Mark 8.34... 
with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's just a recapitulation of what Jesus is saying. Look, it's Christmas. And at Christmas, we get a glimpse of the most selfless act in human history. Consider Jesus in realms of glory. Consider Jesus for all eternity past with his Father in the love and unity and the fellowship of the Spirit. Perfect harmony, perfect bliss. As some scholars have called it, the perichoresis, the dance of the Trinity. Always self-giving love, always preferring the other. The Son glorifies the Father, the Father glorifies the Son. They don't seek their own. But at Christmas, at Christmas, the Son leaves that perfect relationship with the Father. He enters into our world, breaks through, puts on our skin, and becomes seemingly inconsequential. He becomes the most vulnerable of all creatures. He becomes a tiny fetus in his mother's womb, a young virgin in the corner of Palestine 2,000 years ago. Now that is an act of selfless, self-giving love. But it's the way of God, my friends. It is the way of God. As we've said many times before, Philippians 2.5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, that word, though, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God. There's a debate. Is though the right translation? And the best Greek commentaries would suggest that it shouldn't be though. It should be because he was. Think about it this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, because he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, in the essence of his godness, he gives himself away. Because he's God, he's not curved in on himself. Because he's God, he is full of self-giving, self-flowing love. Because he is God, he overflows within his love and creates the world as we know it. Because he is God, he doesn't allow us to stay in our sinful state, but breaks into our world, puts on our skin, and walks among us. Before, because he is God, he dies in our place on our Roman cross, giving us life and life eternal. Because he's God. And if that's true about him, then how much more so should it be true about us? So let's look at how we mortify the flesh. It is the work of that is done in the Spirit alone. But if it's the work that's done by the Spirit alone, how can we also be exhorted to it? Think about it this way. It says, But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see the paradox, don't you? There's a paradox in 8.13. 
On the one hand, killing sin is something Paul says you must do. You put to death the deeds of the body. But on the other hand, it says you do it by the Spirit. You know, in studying for these sermons, one of the books I've been reading is by John Owen called The Mortification of Sin. And Owen addresses this notion of the paradox. And he says this. He said, It is no otherwise the work of the Spirit, because all the graces and all the good works that are in us are His as well. What does he mean by that? Owen is saying that everything that's good in your life and in your heart is a gift from God already, and why would this be any different? Philippians 2 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Isaiah 26 says, O Lord, you have ordained peace for us, for indeed you have done all our works in us. It is God who even causes us to pray, as we're going to see in two weeks from now. It says, For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And yet we can still be exhorted and commanded to all these things. We can say that it is God who does the work, and we can also be commanded to put to death the deeds of the flesh. They're not incongruent with one another. They're one and the same. But the Holy Spirit, my friends, the Holy Spirit is not just something that we can, because, because the Holy Spirit is not just something that we can wield when we feel like it. The Holy Spirit is not just some tool in our toolbox that we can pick up and put down at our discretion and leisure. He's God. He's not at our disposal. He's not a weapon. He's a person. To put to death the deeds of the body by no means, by the means of God alone, means that the Spirit must be the decisive killer of our sins. So that's the paradox. You do it, but you do it in such a way that it is the Spirit who is the decisive killer. Paul talks this way at other places in the Scriptures too, right? 1 Corinthians, uh, he says this, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I labored even more than all of you, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. I labored, he says, but it was not me. He said it was by God's grace, it was God's spirit in me and with me. So, we must put to death the deeds of the flesh in such a way that it is decisively the spirit that puts to death our sin. So how do we do this? Well, this is how we do this. The gospel of Jesus Christ, as I've said a hundred times, is not just the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z. In other words, we kill sin the same way that we get saved. You kill sin the same way that you get saved. And how do you get saved? What does Ephesians tell us? By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. It's through faith. Faith, not works, is the way that we're made right with God. And faith, not works, is the way that we engage the Holy Spirit to kill our sin. To become a Christian, you believe promises like everyone who calls upon the Lord will be saved. And to fight sin as a Christian, you believe promises like I will never leave you or forsake you. 
One is a belief and a promise to be justified, to become a Christian. The other one's a belief and a promise to be sanctified, to become more like him. I will never leave you or forsake you is the way in which you fight against your anxiety. He will never leave you or forsake you. The place that you're at in your life right now is not a divine accident. He will never leave you or forsake you. You believe that this morning. The degree to which you believe it is the degree to which your anxiety will slowly melt away. Because God is the one that's in control of your life. So how else does this work? Well, there's a place in John's gospel, John chapter 14, where it says this, the Holy Spirit will come to you and he will manifest to you. He will manifest to you all that I've taught you. He will bring to your remembrance my words. It's the Holy Spirit's job. It's the Holy Spirit's job to bring to our remembrance, to bring things to our heart, to make the penny drop a little bit further so that we embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ a little bit more. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And when we believe those promises in faith as God brings them to our remembrance, that's how we slowly begin to change. But you know what that means? It means that throughout your life, throughout my life, that there's going to be different places. There's going to be different things that prick your heart and grab your heart and move your heart in such a way that the Holy Spirit makes the gospel of Jesus Christ more and more real to you. What do I mean by that? Well, there's a hint of what I mean by that in this, earlier in our text today. Verse 3 says this. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That word for there, where it says for sin, that's a technical term. It's a technical term thinking back to the Old Testament, thinking back to the sacrificial system, that Jesus Christ put on sin, excuse me, put on flesh, put on our skin for sin. That baby that was born in that manger was born so that he might condemn sin in his flesh. And when the Holy Spirit brings that to your mind, brings to your mind the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and it grabs your heart again and afresh, that's how we slowly and subtly and progressively change. And you should be amassing in your life and in your heart different places in which God speaks these kinds of truths to you, where the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes real to you. It's a term that um, Tim Keller says that the gospel is like a cancer, and what you need are radioactive isotopes that can attack that cancer. You need gospel gems in your toolkit, as it were, that the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance. And I don't know what that is for you. But I'm going to tell you some of them that it is for me. And here's some, I think, for you kids, if you're listening. It's going to sound a little corny at first. But some of the ways in which the Holy Spirit brings the good news, the gospel, the realness of the gospel to my heart. How many of you kids have seen Inside Out? Probably like most of you. Yeah. 
And you remember... All right, I'm really going to do this. Okay. You remember Bing Bong? I just said Bing Bong. And he's that elephant-looking dude. And you remember what Bing Bong has to do is he has to get joy back so that they can help Riley, right? But do you remember what happens when they're down in that big pit down there? Bing Bong has to sacrifice himself so that joy can get back to the top, so that joy can go help Riley. And Bing Bong is left in this place where all the long-term memories are disregarded. Bing Bong is willing to become inconsequential and forgotten for the sake of Riley. Now, when I watch that, and I'm sitting there and watching that with my kids, and they look over me, and I'm weeping. They're like, Dad loves Riley. <laughs> well, Dad doesn't love Riley, but when I see that, when I see sacrificial, substitutionary sacrifice, it moves me. It moves me because it reminds me of Jesus. It reminds me of what Jesus has done for me in my place and on my behalf. And that becomes a radioactive isotope. It becomes a gospel gem that the Holy Spirit uses in my heart to slowly push away my nasty self-centeredness and self-curvedness. You know, the place for me is when I think of the story of Abraham and Isaac. And you see Isaac get up to this place where his father's going to sacrifice him. And at the last moment, you know what happens. There's a ram in a thicket, and God doesn't sacrifice Isaac. Instead, he sacrifices a ram. And do you remember what God says to Abraham in that moment? He says, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, from me. And every time I read Abraham and Isaac, I remembered that at the foot of the cross, we can look up and say, because you did not withhold your son from us, Now we know that you love us. You love us. And that's just one of the places that God uses in my life and my heart. There's even just certain terms that we use for Jesus. They come up in in, in worship songs. They come up in the scriptures. And when I read them, I just can't. I'm overcome with emotion. Man of sorrows. Friend of sinners. Suffering servant. The Savior King. Those are just the material that the Spirit uses to mortify my stupid self-centeredness. That Jesus is a friend of sinners. He's my friend. He loves me. He gave himself up for me. He will forever be the man of sorrows. A man acquainted with grief. Psalm 16. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for pleasant, in pleasant places for me. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You make known to me the paths of life. And in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The Spirit just uses that in my heart. To mortify my flesh. There are certain sermons. There are certain sermons that I've always listened to. I listen to them throughout the year, all year long. I listen to John Piper's sermon, Don't Waste Your Life. There's several different Tim Keller sermons I listen to. Chris's sermon, Jesus of the Scars. I can't even think of the title of the sermon oftentimes without weeping. I read Jonathan Edwards' sermon, That Heaven is a World of Love. And it just melts and mortifies my flesh. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards says. When he's describing heaven as a world of love, 
He says, there dwells God, the Father and the Son, who are united in infinitely dear and incomprehensible mutual love. There dwells God the Father, who is the Father of mercies, and so the Father of love, who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And there dwells Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Prince of peace and love, who so loved the world that he shed his blood and poured it out unto death. There dwells the Mediator, by whom all God's love is expressed to the saints, by whom the fruits of it have been purchased and through whom they were communicated and through whom his love is imparted to the hearts of all the church. There dwells Christ the Messiah, who dwells in both his natures, human and divine, sitting with the Father in the same throne. There is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of divine love, in whom is the very essence of God. And all flows out and is shed abroad in our hearts to all the church. There is in heaven a fountain of love. This eternal three-in-one is set open without any obstacle to hinder access to it. There this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory in beams of love. There the fountain overflows in streams and rivers of love and delight, enough for all to drink at and to even swim in, so as to overflow the world as if it were a deluge of love. That melts me. When I'm being a self-centered idiot, and I get up in the morning after being a jerk to my children, and I read something like that, the Holy Spirit just uses that to mortify my flesh. It's the Spirit's job, my friends. It's the Spirit's job to bring these things to your remembrance so that you can mortify your flesh and thereby live. Let's give you one more. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Do you have those kinds of isotopes? Do you have those places where the Spirit impresses on you the reality of who Jesus Christ really is? If you do, then continue to amass more. And if you don't, then begin reading the scriptures and finding those places where the reality of the gospel is yours. Listen to good sermons. Read good books on the scriptures, books that extol and talk about the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. Put to death the deeds of your flesh by the Spirit. And Christmas is a great place to do that. You've got the next few days here to just behold the wonder and the beauty of the incarnation of the Son of God. He, because he was God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself and took on the form of human likeness. Let that melt your heart in the next few days. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gospel. We pray, God, that your spirit would mortify our flesh, that our self-centeredness, 
are deeply curved in nature, would be put to death and we would live. Give us, God, that violent disposition towards our own sin. And Father, help us to celebrate and rejoice in Jesus Christ this Christmas season. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we're going to take communion this morning. And if you're a guest with us this morning and you've been baptized and um, repented of all your sins and trust Jesus Christ alone, then we invite you to partake of the, of the table with us. If that's not you, if you're not a Christian, I encourage you to not partake of the elements. This is a, it's a covenant meal. It's a meal for those that are united to Jesus and have all their hope and trust in Jesus alone. If you're not a Christian, I just encourage you to just consider the message that was spoken. Consider how God maybe is even moving in your heart this morning. You can come up row by row, take the elements back to your seat, and uh, one of the elders will come up and lead us through the Lord's Supper together.